This episode of the Mongol Empire podcast is dedicated to Jamie Campbell, a friend and brother who will be greatly missed. My name is Corey, and this is episode 4.3 of the mini-series Consolidation, which covers the years 1206 to 1211. In the first two episodes, we investigated the role of the Kuriltai, and how by holding one, Temujin was able to reform Mongol society and confirm his position at the top of it. The Kuriltai also saw him gain a nice new title, Chinggis Khan, which he would be known by from this point onwards. Before we crack on with the next five years of events, I should explain how I'm approaching them. Up until now, it has been a pretty steady journey following events chronologically, but for this series I am taking things a bit more thematically, primarily because the sources are quite sparse on detail for the period. At this point in time, I have two further episodes planned after this one. 4.4 will address the Mongol conquests of the forest tribes and the smaller groups living beyond the traditional homelands of the Mongolian nomads. Episode 4.5 will discuss the conflict against the Tangut Empire of Shishia. Both of these episodes cover events across the 1206 to 1211 spectrum, and will draw on a mix of primary and secondary sources. There will also be an episode on the history of Shishia, which will be released prior to 4.5, and one or multiple family history episodes. I've not yet made a decision about this. Now that our future has been mapped out, let us properly begin this episode. Today's events take place soon after the conclusion of the Kuriltai, and come about as a direct consequence of it. The first bit of business which I imagine Chinggis was adamant about undertaking was the final destruction of the Nayman tribe. Nayman opposition to Chinggis's rule had effectively ended with the defeat of Taiyang in the winter of 1203-4, but Chinggis did not need to leave an opportunity for any disgruntled tribesmen to rally around Taiyang's estranged brother, Buryuk, however low the chances of that actually happening were. There may have been a more legitimate reason for Chinggis wanting to crush Buryuk Khan, Cast your minds back to episode 3.10, where I stated that Taiyang's son Guchluk received little to no support from his uncle. Well, this may not have been entirely correct. According to Rashid, Guchluk and the remaining independent Merkit tribespeople led by Togtogebeki had sought refuge with the Neyman leader. Chinggis then comes for the trio straight after the conclusion of the Kiriltai, at which point Guchlug and Toktoga escape to the Urtish, where they remained until 1208, when the Merkit leader is finally killed. Rashid's account is in contrast to the Secret Histories narrative, which presents the sequence as a series of continuous events, which lead to the battle at the Urtish River. It seems in this instance I had failed to heed my own advice about taking the events of the Secret History at face value. So using Rashid's dating, let us quickly present a modified timeline of events. At the end of 1203, Temujin defeats Ong Khan and is then alerted to the fact that Taiyang Khan is building an alliance against him. That winter, 
Temujin leads his army against and inflicts a crushing defeat on the Neyman, forcing the survivors of the alliance to scatter north and west, at which point Gutschlug joins up with his uncle. At the end of 1204 and possibly into early 1205, Temujin heads north against the Merkit, a campaign which sees Toktogebeki escape once more. This time, he goes to Buryuk's camp in Western Mongolia, where he joins up with Guchlug. Apart from a brief campaign against Shishia, I would suggest that 1205 is spent sorting out the administration of the new nation, tidying up a few loose ends, such as Jamuga, and preparing to hold a Kirill tie, which took place, according to Rashid, in February 1206. Like many of the stories in The Secret History, the tale it tells about Subutai being ordered to prepare to hunt the market down probably has a basis in real life events, but more likely relates to the campaign that takes place in 1208. We are now once more working to Rashid's timeline, which means that we return to 1206, where the Kirultai has just finished. Quote, when the assembly of the Kirultai was over, they set out to attack Buryuk Khan, who was hunting with falcons in the area of Uluk-Tak. End quote. The first thing to note about this is that the decision to attack Buryuk was made during the Kirultai, and it highlights the fact that the agenda of the 1206 Kirultai included plans to further expand the Mongol nation. Whilst Chinggis would have had the final say over any campaign, that it was the first one to be undertaken after the Kirultai suggests that it had the support of the majority of the newly appointed tribal leaders. It was perhaps seen as an easy victory that could be used to create or strengthen national unity. The power and importance of Buryat Khan had greatly diminished since the crushing defeat he had suffered at the hands of Temujin and Ong Khan in 1202. It seems that he had happily resigned himself to a quiet life in the Altai Mountains, away from the scheming of his brother Taiyang and the wider politics of the steppe. The decision then to bring two high-profile wanted men into his camp is somewhat curious, as it effectively painted a big red target on him. Even more curious was that he apparently took no precautions to protect his people from any potential consequence of this action. Quote, Chinggis Khan and the army fell upon him like fate and destroyed him, taking his land, home, wives and children, and herds and flocks. End quote. We can offer some explanation for the Neyman leader's unpreparedness. The Kirultai took place in the headwaters of the Onan River, found in the Hentai Mountains in northeast Mongolia. Buryat Khan's home in the Altai was about 1,500 kilometres away, so it seems unlikely that Buryak would have had much information about what was happening on the other side of the steppe. He was a man operating with limited resources and who had a limited interest in what was taking place elsewhere. It should come as no surprise that he was unprepared for an attack. For the Mongols, it made sense for them to undertake a campaign against an enemy based at such a distance. It gave them the chance to put into practice the reforms made at the Kirultai. They could use the expedition to train newcomers, and build on the discipline and mobility that Chinggis' army had exhibited against Taiyang. Additionally, the Neyman were a known entity. There would be no surprises. This was not a Mongol army going to war, this was a Mongol army out hunting, and the speed of the hunt meant that the Neyman stood no chance. Despite killing Buryak and taking the last of the Neyman, Guchuk and Toktogebeki once more escaped. I think by this point Toktogebeki would have been resigned to the fact that Chinggis was determined to destroy him and his family, and 
Gutschluck was no fool, so the pair would have expected further reprisals and been prepared to run again. This time, they moved to the Irtish River, which marked the western boundary of Neyman territory. We will meet them one more time in 1208. The speed of the campaign makes it little more than a footnote in the Mongol conquests, so it's understandable that the secret history gets things mixed up. After all, it is a chronicle constructed from the memories of those who took part in the conquests, and by the 1230s, the Mongol nation had been on campaign in a huge number of theatres of war. One final thought for this action. Is there an argument that the defeat of Buryuk was one of the most important actions of Chinggis Khan's early reign? Chinggis personally led the army. He showed that his new command structure worked, and that the men he had selected to be Minganu Noyan were able to carry out his wishes to great effect. Sure, the Neyman were a weak target, but it was more important to harness the enthusiasm and excitement brought about by his coronation and successfully direct it against an external enemy. Whilst it would have been a bonus to capture Gutschlug and Toktogebeki, it was really just an opportunity for Chinggis to show that he was the big man of the Mongol nation. He was flexing his muscles to show the people that he was the right man to lead them. If that was what he was trying to do, then it didn't work. There was a growing threat to Chinggis' position as Khan, and that was from the man who was known to the Mongol nation as Teb Tengri. The shaman was a man of great spiritual power, who was able to commune with nature and divine the future. The chronicler Atamalak Juvaini, writing in the 1250s, said about him, quote, There arose a man of whom I have heard from trustworthy Mongols that during the severe cold that prevails in those regions, he used to walk naked through the desert and the mountains, and then to return and say, God has spoken with me, and he has said, I have given all the face of the earth to Temujin and his children, and named him Chinggis Khan. Bid him administer justice in such and such a fashion. They called this person Teb Tengri, and whatever he said, Chinggis Khan used to implicitly to follow. End quote. Such was the reputation of Teb Tengri that even in the 1250s, tales of his deeds and powers were circulating among Mongol society. Depending on which source you consult, Kokachu, as he was originally known, was one of four or seven sons born to the secret history's father Mungaligachiga. Barring a period soon after Chinggis's family had been abandoned by the Taichigud, Mungalig had been a constant and loyal servant of the imperial family. As Yesugai lay dying, it was Mungalig who had been sent to retrieve the nine-year-old Temujin from the Ungarid camp. Later, it was Mungalig who prevented Temujin from walking into the trap set by Sengum and Jamuga, which led to the battle at Kalakaujid. At some point during the Mongolian Wars, Mungalig was married to Temujin's mother Hoglan as a reward for his long and valued service to the family. As a result of Mungalig's close ties to the Khan's family, Kokachu's own career appears to have taken a similar trajectory. But whilst he had shown similar abilities as his father, there was one major difference. Mungalig seems to have been happy in his position as advisor and stepfather to Temujin, but Kokachu was ambitious and had his own plans. If we accept that the description of the man's personality recorded by the Jamial Tarawik is based in reality, then Kokachu's transformation into the shaman Teb Tengri appears to have been a natural development. 
The story given by Rashid is probably based on the one told by Juvaini, in that Teb Tengri had the ability to withstand extreme cold, with the heat from his body melting the surrounding ice. It goes on to say that the common Mongol people also believe that Teb Tengri regularly visited heaven by riding a grey horse. He would bring back the word of God, which he would then declare. Unlike Juvaini, Rashid felt it was necessary to respond to these claims. Quote, This is an exaggeration and fabrication of the common people. He did possess the power to lead and deceive, and he spoke audaciously to Chinggis Khan. But since some of what he said was in conformity with Chinggis's nature, he liked him. End quote. But Rashid wasn't done here. He goes on to say that Teb Tengri spoke too much and boldly meddled in everything. He finishes his put-down of the shaman by stating that he was a crazy, sick man. Rashid clearly had no love or time for the shamanistic beliefs of the Mongols, believing that the men who claimed to be able to predict the future were no more than charlatans or quacks. But as Rashid states, Teb Tengri found a willing adherence of his prophecies in the Mongol leader. This is perhaps unsurprising, considering that the main proclamation he gave to Chinggis was that God had commanded that he would be the ruler of the world, and everything leading up to 1206 had indicated that this would be true. And by 1206, Teb Tengri had reached the height of his power over the Khan. He was now the chief shaman, and was given the responsibility of crowning Temujin Chinggis Khan. And that would have been fine if that was the extent of his ambition. But it wasn't, and it soon became clear that he had designs on the throne. As far as I'm aware, the only source that provides a clear account of the downfall of the shaman is in the secret history. Both Rashid and Juvaini acknowledge that he was killed after an altercation with the royal prince, but neither man recorded why he got into a fight, or the actions he had taken to enhance his position at the expense of said princes, or that he had offered a legitimate challenge to Chinggis's rule. And I think the main reason we only find the story of Teb Tengri's challenge to Chinggis Khan in the secret history is because the Mongol leader does not come out of it looking that good. The secret history records two parts of Teb Tengri's plan to undermine Chinggis's authority. The first move was to exploit the tensions between Chinggis and his brother Kassar. The second part was to take advantage of his father's relationship with Hoglan. Let us hand over to the secret history to set the scene. Quote, now Father Mungalig of the Kongatad clan had seven sons. The middle one of these sons was named Kokachu, and he had become a great shaman, known as Teb Tengri, the Heavenly One. All seven brothers conspired against Kassar, and together they beat him up. End quote. Kassar went to Chinggis's tent to complain about his treatment, probably expecting some form of harsh punishment to be handed down. After all, the brothers had just laid hands on a royal prince. But Chinggis was not in the mood to hear what Kassar had to say. The secret history tells us that he was angry about other matters and had no patience, and his response reflected this, quote, I've heard you say over and over again, there's no living creature stronger than I am. How could seven brothers have beaten you? This answer brought Kassar to tears. Angered and hurt, he left Chinggis's tent and refused to come back for three days. End quote. The secret history's explanation that Chinggis was angry and distracted seems like a convenient excuse. Chinggis had previously jumped to the defence of his family members when they were insulted. So maybe we need to look for an alternative reason for his behaviour, and it just so happens that we have one. Kassar only appears intermittently during Temujin's rise to power, and each time he makes an appearance, it is in the guise of the loyal, supported brother. 
As a child, he aided Temujin in the murder of Bekta. He was named as Temujin's personal swordsman and accompanied him to seek the protection of Togrul. Kassar then turns up at Baljuna, having escaped from Onkan's camp, and it is his appearance that enables Temujin to conquer the Karayid and seal control over central Mongolia. As a reward, Kassar is made commander of the centre of the army as it confronts Tayang Khan's alliance. As these examples only really represent the beginning and end of Temujin's rise, where was Kassar for the other key events in Temujin's political career? Rashid and the Secret History both suggest that the relationship between the brothers was not particularly straightforward. Evidence for this came at the Kuraltai, where Kassar was given a small number of people to govern. Rashid took this further, stating that the portions were given to Kassar's three sons, rather than Kassar himself. Whilst Belgatai's portions were also omitted by Rashid, this is understandable, as Belgatai was only a half-brother to Chinggis, and therefore his line of descendants were not important to record. However, it is recorded that Belgatai was made chief Yaguchi, whilst there is no indication that Kassar was awarded any position of note. Looking further back, why was Kassar with Onkan whilst Temujin was fighting for his life at Kalakaljid? Sure, it was a surprise attack, but why was he not camping with his brother? A reason for this may have been related to Rashid's report that Kassar was named as a potential contender for the leadership of the Mongol people. One thing we've not really discussed at all is that Chinggis Khan was superstitious. We shall see more evidence of this in a bit, but throughout the secret history, Temujin's always come across to me at least as a man who was following the will of eternal heaven and, as a result, didn't want to do anything that would upset that. This meant that men who came to him with prophecies of his success were kept around, relationships that had been sealed with oaths should not be broken, and that shamans could become powerful political figures. This outlook also arguably hindered Temujin's leadership, especially when big decisions were needed to be made. He hesitated. The death of Jamuga is a good example. The Pledge of Anda went beyond being just a political and emotional link between participants. It was witnessed by eternal heaven and supposed to be unbreakable. To do so was one of the worst things possible. The reluctance of Temujin to execute his Ander can be viewed as a spiritual conundrum. If he did the deed, would he then incur the wrath of heaven? In the end, Temujin either received absolution for the decision from Jamuga himself, or it was taken out of his hands by his advisors. So circling back round to Kassar, if Temujin was being told that his brother could also enjoy the favour of eternal heaven at the expense of himself, then suddenly Kassar's every action becomes suspicious, and finding ways to limit his power and influence makes sense. As fratricide was one of the few acts of violence actually despised by Mongol society, he could not personally murder Kassar, but this did not mean that others couldn't have a go. So maybe this explains why Kassar had moved his family to Onkan's camp. Their safety was no longer guaranteed in Temujin's, whereas he appeared to have enjoyed the favour of the Korean chief. Whether Kassar actually had his own plans to be Khan will probably never be known, and whilst I've not read his biography in the Wanshi, I feel that if something of this magnitude was recorded in it, then it would have been flagged up by modern scholarship. So with Kassar now in self-imposed exile from Chinggis's presence, and the Khan more irritated with his brother than normal, when Tebtengri paid a visit, he found the perfect conditions to further increase tensions between the two men. Quote, These are the words of eternal blue heaven, he said. 
I have heard commandments from above about the Khan. Once I heard voices say, let Temujin rule the nation. Then I heard voices say, let Kassar rule the nation. If Chinggis Khan doesn't strike first at Kassar, none of my powers can predict what will happen. End quote. And that is exactly what Chinggis did. He set out to arrest Kassar. By dawn, Kassar was back in Chinggis's tent, his belt and hat removed, his arms tied, whilst being questioned as to what his words meant and what his motives were. Fortunately, there was one other important person who knew what was going on in Chinggis's camp. As her role in her son's administration became less important, the secret history tells us that Hogalun had ensured that she had informants around the camp, keeping her up to date on the decisions made by her eldest son. Perhaps she feared a scenario such as this taking place. After all, Temujin had shown that he had little problem executing family members who appeared disloyal. Informed of Chinggis's move to arrest Kassar, Hogalun had her white camel harnessed to her cart and set out to the Khan's camp. She arrived just as the sun was rising. Quote, Hogalon arrived at the camp. Chinggis Khan was terrified at the sight of her. She rode into the camp furious, leapt from her cart, and the mother herself unbound Kassar's sleeves, the sleeves that Chinggis Khan had just tied. The mother herself returned Kassar his hat and his belt, the hat and belt Chinggis Khan had just taken. Unable to control the anger she felt, Hogalun sat down before Chinggis, crossing her legs beneath her, brought out her two breasts from under her coat, laying them on her two knees, and cried, Do you know these breasts? These are the breasts you sucked from. These are the source of your life. And like the mother of the wolf, I ate the afterbirth. I cut the navel cord for you both. What could Kassar have done to deserve this? Temujin could empty one of my breasts with his drinking, and Katugan and Temuj couldn't even empty one, but Kassar could drink all the milk from both breasts. He eased my pains and brought me rest. So the wise and able Temujin received his wisdom and ability from the breasts, and from me Kassar got his great strength and skill with a bow. Anyone who went to war with him, he'd shoot them down and they'd surrender. They'd be terrified by him. He'd shoot them all and they'd surrender. Now you claim I've killed all our enemies, but you can't stand the sight of your own brother Kassar. End quote. Chinggis let his mother speak until her anger was gone, by which point her intervention had succeeded. If there was one thing Chinggis feared more than eternal heaven, then it was his mother. And shamed by her arguments, he ordered Kassar to be released, but not without secretly punishing him. Chinggis took away many of the households led by Kassar, leaving him with a following of a thousand. When Hogalun found out what Chinggis had done, the secret history says that it brought her to old age, which we can interpret to mean that she died. That Chinggis's actions towards Kassar were unjust is proven by the reaction of his own followers. Many people decided to move to Teb Tengri's camp to follow a leader who was not only blessed by eternal heaven, but also who was hopefully a bit less arbitrary. Surely the shaman wouldn't make unjust decisions based on rumour and gossip. Hogalon's death added further complications to Chinggis's leadership. Remember that she had been married to Teb Tengri's father, Mungalegachiga. With her demise, the shaman now put into action part two of his plan, and he moved to claim the portion of her estate that he believed he was owed due to the laws of inheritance. Hogalon's estate was made up of the families and warriors gifted to her at the Kirul side by Chinggis. 
By claiming a portion of this, Teb Tengri was able to challenge Chinggis's position as Khan by generating conflict with another member of his family, this time with his youngest brother Temuz Odchigin. Temuz and Hogalan had received the largest share of the tribe's people divided up between Chinggis's immediate family, which they jointly managed with the expectation that Temuz would solely lead when Hogalan died. Teb Tengri managed to prevent this process from taking place. Instead, the secret history states, a large number of people who had been given to Temuj left to join the shaman. In response, Temuj sent a messenger to Teb Tengri, demanding his people be returned. But the shaman deliberately twisted the words to make it seem as if Temuj was making an offering, and he then sent the messenger back on foot with his saddle tied to his back. Temuj then went himself to demand the return of his people, quote, I sent my messenger to you with a request, and you had him beaten and sent back on foot. Now I've come myself to request that you return my people. The seven Congatan brothers surrounded him, standing before him, standing behind him, and they said to him, What right did you have to send your messenger? Together they seized him and beat him, until out of fear, Odjigan answered, I had no right to send you my messenger. And the seven brothers replied to him, to show you are wrong, you must kneel in repentance, making Ojigin kneel behind Teb Tengri. End quote. Tamuj was forced to leave Teb Tengri's camp without his people and went straight to Chinggis's tent, entering before dawn, where he knelt at the foot of the bed crying and wailing. He informed his brother of the shaman's refusal to return Tamuj's people and the humiliation he had suffered at the hands of Teb Tengri's brothers, how he was forced to bow in deference to the man. He also told Chinggis of the defection of the Khan's own people, and how Teb Tengri was growing in power. Before Chinggis could respond, Borta sat up and started to cry. Quote, What are these Kongatad brothers doing? First they'd gotten together and beaten Kassar. Now why are they forcing Ojigin to kneel to them? What kind of behaviour is this? They harm your brothers behind your back, your brothers who are strong as cypress and pines. Then, when your own body falls like an old tree, who will rule your people? These fields of tangled grasses? When your body crumbles like an old pillar, who will lead your people? These great flocks of birds? Anyone who harms your brothers behind your back, these brothers who are like cypress and pines, will such people let my four little sons rule the nation when they grow up? What are the Kongatad doing? How can you stand for this? How can you let them insult your younger brothers? End quote. Bords raised a few very good points. Obviously, there was the not-so-subtle undermining of Chinggis's position, which apparently everyone apart from Chinggis could see. There was also the valid point of the succession. This speech suggests that Chinggis had not yet given it any real thought. Perhaps he had the expectation that his eldest son would inherit the nation, but nothing formal had been arranged. If this was the case, then no wonder Bort was concerned about Chinggis's inaction over Teb Tengri's clearly seditious activity. If Chinggis was unwilling to defend his family and almost commit fratricide because of the lies Teb Tengri had told him, why would the nation follow his directions after he died? But despite the fact that Teb Tengri was clearly preparing to throw down a leadership challenge, the Khans still seemed to be reluctant to take action against the shaman. Maybe this was because he was superstitious, and Teb Tengri was the most powerful shaman in the nation. But once more, Chinggis hesitated. He responded to Tamuj, quote, Teb Tengri comes to see me today. Whatever you want to do to him, whatever you think can be done, 
I leave it to you to decide how to act. End quote. Rachnevsky states that there was no doubt that Chinggis was determined to get rid of Teb Tengri, but I don't believe that the language used in Paul Kahn's adaptation of the secret history, which I'm using, really conveys that certainty. I think that the power Teb Tengri held over the Khan was greater than we may expect. After all, this was a man who had the power to heal the sick, control the weather, predict the future, and seemingly had the favour of eternal heaven. As another man who enjoyed the favour of eternal heaven, Chinggis comes across as cautious about doing anything that may affect this. How could he be certain that the killing of one of Eternal Heaven's most powerful servants wouldn't come back to haunt him? Despite introducing radical reforms to Mongol society, in matters of religion, Chinggis holds views similar to those of Ong Khan, a man who believed that his downfall was brought about by not honouring the agents of Eternal Heaven. So much like with the execution of Jamuga, Chinggis passes the spiritual responsibility onto someone else to ensure that he doesn't lose the favour of Eternal Heaven, and this time it's Tammuz who gets the privilege of testing the patience of the gods. When Teb Tengri and his brothers appeared at Chinggis's tent the following day, Tammuz had assembled a group of strong men to deal with the troublesome shaman. Teb Tengri entered the tent with his father and six brothers and took up his honoured position to the right of the wine table. Tammuz then approached him and grabbed his collar. Quote, Yesterday you forced me to say I was wrong. Today, let's settle that by wrestling. And holding tight to his collar, he drew Teb Tengri away towards the door of the tent. End quote. With little option but to meet the challenge, Teb Tengri grabbed Tammuz's collar, and the pair started to wrestle inside the tent. As the wrestling got more intense, Teb Tengri's hat fell off and was quickly snatched up by Mungalig, who held it close to his chest. Still unwilling to be a part of the dispute, Chinggis yelled for the pair to take the fight outside. It is clear from the narrative that Teb Tengri was a reluctant participant in the fight, and he resisted attempts to move the bout outside. But Temuja's grip was strong, and the shaman was dragged out. The strong men Temuja assembled were waiting outside the tent and grabbed the shaman. They threw him to the ground, broke his spine, and chucked his body into a cart store to the left of Chinggis's tent. Temuj then re-entered the tent and said dismissively, quote, Teb Tengri had forced me to say I was wrong. When I challenged him, he wasn't willing to fight me. He pretended to fall, he lay on the ground, and now won't get up. He's no great adversary. His limits are plain to see. End quote. Teptengri is presented as a coward, and any further consequences of his refusal to wrestle with Temuj were of his own doing. The message to Chinggis was clear. Temuj had not suffered any ill effects from killing the shaman. Teptengri did not have supernatural support, and had been killed as easily as anyone else. So come on man, stand up and take responsibility for your own dirty work. Understanding what had actually taken place, Teb Tengri's six brothers stood up and started to menace the Khan, who, protected by his guard, left the tent to see the shaman. And it is at this point Chinggis really gets a grip on the situation. He ordered that the camp be moved, and for Teb Tengri's body to be placed in a sealed tent which would be guarded. Maybe he would wake up again, maybe not, but either way Chinggis would be able to control the response. After three nights of confinement, the secret history states that Teb Tengri's body was seen emerging from the top of the tent. With the body gone, Chinggis was happy to spread the story, and use it to reinforce the position of the imperial family. Quote, Because Teb Tengri laid hands on my younger brothers and spread slander and lies to cause fighting among us, Eternal Blue Heaven no longer loved him and took his life and his body away. End quote. 
So there was no murder. Teb Tengri had simply refused to resolve a dispute and tried to escape justice by laying down. Because he had tried to empower himself at the expense of Chinggis's family, it meant that he lost the favour of Eternal Heaven, who coincidentally decided to take his life at that point. Later, Eternal Heaven realised that, oh no, wow, I've left the body behind, so it came back to claim it. And this is what will happen if you mess with the Imperial family, so don't, or Eternal Heaven will come for you too. That's some real 2 plus 2 equals 5 logic, but the explanation seems to have done the trick. In one move, Chinggis had taken control of the way Teb Tengri's death was presented, and also threatened death to anyone who attempted to mess with his family. Mungalig was also given a warning. Quote, Since you and your sons thought you were equal to me, you've caused Teb Tengri's death. If I'd recognised this before, you'd have been treated as rebels, and punished the same way as Jamuga, Ortan, and Kuchar. End quote. Perhaps recognising that his actions towards Kassar had detrimentally affected his public persona, Chinggis refrained from punishing Mungalig or his sons any further. However, the secret history states that the manner in which Teb Tengri disappeared stopped people from favouring the Kongatan brothers, and they no longer threatened Chinggis's position as leader of the Mongol nation. There are obviously questions about the secret history story, but we're not going to go into them, as I have gone on for long enough at this point. The main effect of this episode was to ensure the primacy of the imperial family over the shamans. So similarly to the way Chinggis installed his own tribal leaders, he now installed his own spiritual guides. He selected a new chief shaman, which would ensure that Chinggis could continue to hear all the good things about his future, but he could also be confident of the man's loyalty, because he owed this position to the Khan. It feels like I'm now saying this of each episode, but hopefully I will be back again with a regular monthly release schedule from now on. But frankly, this year has been such a mess so far that I'm not going to promise anything. Just know that I will be back, and next time we will be looking at the people who reside on the edge of the Mongol homeland. In the meantime, if you want to contact me, the email address is Cory, that's C-O-R-E-Y, at mongolempirepodcast.com, or you can find me on Twitter, at mongolempirepod, which is where I will post schedule updates. Also, don't forget to visit mongolempirepodcast.com for bibliographies, biographies, and anything show-related. And finally, you can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I've always known they were a thing, but the interface for creators is not very intuitive, so I've only just discovered that people have actually been leaving reviews for this show. I've said it before, but seeing that people are enjoying what I'm producing is incredibly motivating, so thank you to everyone who has left a review to this date. Right, I have spoken enough. Until the next episode, take care and thanks for listening. Empire Podcast is researched, written, and produced by Corey Still. The song Majestic Hills is by Kevin McLeod, used on a lifetime extended license.